hello there. Welcome to Just To Be Nominated, a podcast about movies that is distributed by the Lee Enterprises. The show is hosted by Bruce Miller, an entertainment reporter for multiple decades who is currently the editor of the Sioux City Journal, Jared McNett, a reporter for the Globe Gazette in Mason City, Iowa, and me, Chris Lay, the podcast operations manager for Lee. This week, we found out what respect, the new Aretha Franklin biopic, means to Bruce. We checked in with Chris about the new Netflix thriller Beckett, and we got Jared's semi-spicy take on Don't Breathe 2, which led to our staff picks section, where we kicked around the least necessary horror suspense thriller sequels. And finally, we got into some of the latest movie news. Also, special little treat, uh, make sure you listen all the way to the very end for a surprise that can in no way live up to even the faint amount of hype I am giving it here. Uh, you can find links to all the movies that we talk about in the show notes, along with contact info if you want to sound off in our inbox or Twitter DMs. If you dig the show, make sure you let us know what you think in the review section wherever you get your podcasts and uh, tell your friends, you know, spread it around. You like movies? They like movies? Let them know. Now, here it is. Our show kicks off after this short pause. Bruce Miller out in Sioux City, smiling. Um, we got Jared McNett out in Mason City. Better think. Think about what you're trying to do to me. Think. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. And I did see that too, by the way. We can just jump right into it. Um, so you, uh, probably like the, the big high profile film for this week is R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Do you say R-E-S-P-E-C-T or Respect? Respect. Respect. Which is the, the new Aretha Franklin biopic. And Bruce has seen it. Yeah, it's um, very familiar. It's like all those kind of music biographies where, you know, they had something as a kid and then they got going and somebody was mean to them. And it for me, it did not start cooking until it got to 1968. And it even looked like they had switched the way it was filmed by the time they got to 1968 but then it only goes to 72. So it isn't really Aretha's whole life. Um, you get a lot of it in the end uh, credit sequence where you see the real Aretha singing and you'll see pictures and things like that. But I would have liked it to start at 68 and then go to the end. I think that would have been a far better film than what this is. And she was right to pick Jennifer Hudson to play her. She's very good. And she can sing all the notes just like Aretha. And um, for me, having seen that Cynthia Erivo version that was on, um, I think it was National Geo, it was called Genius Aretha. That gave me enough of the same stuff. I didn't learn anything new that I didn't learn from that. Although Cynthia Erivo is so far from what Aretha was that I don't know that I would have ever cast her. She sings like a dream. She's a great actress, but she's not Aretha. Whereas with Jennifer Hudson, she looks more like Aretha. She moves like Aretha. And I think she's a better choice. But I think the script was better for genius Aretha. And, you know, it's 
it's a typical biography, typical. There's nothing new in this that you didn't see in What's Love Got to Do With It or any of these other ones. And I, I know that there's more to Aretha than that had to say. In fact, I think it would have it been better if it had dug into some of her political things she did um, a little more. And especially those last years when she was very sick and people were always trying to write her off as if she were dead. We had her here in Sioux City for the um, Saturday in the Park concert thing that happens every 4th of July. She, it's a free concert thing and she played outside. And it was a, a fascinating thing to see her. And then to hear the stories that people said about her, it was a far different Aretha than um, you see in this film. Um, she would, as we were told, she was very um, in charge of her career. She called all the shots and when the uh, bellboys brought in her luggage for the hotel, she insisted that she give them the tips that nobody else would. And when she paid for her, her room, she did it herself. She did not have some other person do it because she had been so kind of, if you will, screwed over by other people that she was gonna make sure that she was in charge of everything she did. And so, and they said she had a big wad of hundreds that she would just peel the hundreds off and pay the people with this. And um, it's nice to know that she was in control. And I think that would have been kind of cool to show is how she realized, no, I'm not having these people do this. I'm not, I am gonna be in control of my life. And I don't think you got that from the movie at all. It was very typical that she went back with the guy and she liked this and she did that. And, you know, I don't know. It's, it's respectful, respectful maybe is what it should be. But, uh, you know, and I maybe I've told you this before. If, if I have, you can stop me and, and edit it or whatever. But I had written a review about Aretha's show. And the next morning when it was in the paper, I got a phone call. They said, are you going to be there? Are you going to be at the office? Um, you're getting something from Aretha Franklin. And I said, yeah, I'll be here. And they said, no, you have to be there because we have to make, she said, you have to make the connection. You have to give this to him directly. And so I was here and in came a florist with, I kid you not, the largest bouquet of flowers I have ever seen in my life. It had at least four dozen roses in there. It had lilies, everything. It was like, I, I will never get this good in my funeral. It'll never be that big. And um, it had a nice card in with it that said, thank you so much for your review. And please thank all the nice people in Sioux City for a great time. And I thought, wow, is that really something? And it had to cost at least $500, if not more. And I thought, look at how that is that she was so careful about her career and so crafting that she would make sure that there was something that said, you know, I appreciate what you've done. And that's, a, that's an Aretha that I didn't see in this movie. I think that attention to detail was what made her so different from everybody else. And the stories, I did a story too about uh, five years later than what was it like when Aretha came to town. And I talked to all the people who had some encounter with her and they all had these fun little stories to tell. So for me, there's a much more um, involved story about Aretha Franklin that should be told. But I, to me, uh, it'll always, I, and I have pictures of it, I, it'll remain in my life as the unbelievable surprise because mostly when you write reviews they go into the ether and nobody says anything unless they really hate it and then they come after you and they're ready to stab you but to have somebody who, who liked something 
and was grateful for it. She didn't need at all to send any kind of flowers. All she needed to do if she felt she needed to say something was to just have a minion say, Aretha liked the review, you know, and then you'd still be surprised. So that's my Aretha Franklin story. And uh, the movie is, I would say in the two and a half star range. Does it, um, does the movie at all get into recording and stuff for the uh, Amazing Grace live album? Yeah, that's a big part of it. Um, she has hit bottom and uh, she realizes that she needs to go back to what she started with. And she goes to her uh, record label and says, I wanna do a gospel album. And they say, it's not gonna sell. It's gonna be the worst thing ever. No, you're not doing that. She says, no, I'll leave you. If I don't get to do my gospel album, I'm, I'm gone. And so they do that and then they do a documentary along with it. And she's very nervous about all this, that, you know, the cameras are going to be on me. And a friend of hers says, you know, just go back to the beginning, go back to what you were and don't pay attention to the cameras and just sing from the heart. And it's, it's one of the most moving segments in the whole film, but yeah, you see that. And then you see kind of reunions with people that she had squabbles with. They came to the, the filming of it. So it's yeah. in there. There's a, there's a there's a documentary that documentary did finally come out like a couple years ago and given like the more recent trend of like taking documentaries that are only a couple years old and then making a biopic out of them i'm almost surprised they didn't just entirely make that period of time the focus of the movie because that would be a pretty rich text to draw from for like an entire movie and um, you know, I've kind of said before anyway that I kind of like when they just focus on a very specific moment in time because you can't fit a, an entire artist like Aretha Franklin's life into a two-hour movie. No, and, you know, if they had started, like I say, if they started in 68, if you started doing when Martin Luther King was like her best friend, and I think there's a lot more juice there because she wanted to go marching and then the record label said, no, you can't do this. And then you see her singing at Martin's funeral. Well, Genius did the same thing, but I think there's a lot more there to kind of unwind and they don't. The problem ultimately, it sounds like, I mean, I haven't seen this specific film, but speaking about biopics in general and maybe more bullseyeing on music biopics, but the formula is so, beat to death you talked about it bruce where this is i mean it follows the exact same kind of arc that you get you know has been I mean, ever since walk hard the dewey cox story you can't do these movies anymore that in some ways is always in the back of my head with any music like biopics now is walk hard because that one just so perfectly wrecked like what the formula is for just perfectly pointed out you do this and then there's this and then yeah like and so it's hard even now like to not think of that at least a little bit if you've seen that movie at least once or a dozen times in my case <laughs> you know are all these singers uh doomed to have a bad relationship where somebody beats you up all the time and then you have a fall that brings you down as low as you can go and you're probably addicted to drugs or alcohol or something and then something else picks you back up and then you have this triumphant return they're all the same if you could just find a different way to frame it 
and you end up with you know something like one night in miami where you end up getting all of that stuff together and it's takes place over a very specific time and you're able to wring a lot more interesting context out of it look at green book which is based on a real singer's life they only do one little kind of tour really and that's where you get the taste of what the person is like and all that and that'd be perfect for something like this you don't need to have the definitive from birth to death kind of story. Although I wish that they had included that. You know, the thing I loved about uh, Aretha's funeral and Jennifer Hudson, by the way, saying at that was that she had them change her shoes all the time uh, when she was on display. And I love that idea. I think that is like so cool that somebody would say, all right, now when you're all looking at me about after two hours, I want you to change the shoes. Okay. And then go on with the next round. So those are quirky things that never, ever come out, you know? And I don't know why you feel that you need to have the whole story and also redemption and revival. That's unnecessary. But that's the, I mean, you figure anyone who's been in show business for more than five or six decades, you can fit them into that arc because in Hollywood or in the music industry, you're going to have ups and downs. and if anybody still cares about you after, you know, 50, 60 years, you're back up on the top. It's in some way or other. It's the Chumbawamba theory of, of telling uh, stories. I get knocked down, but I get up again. Uh, you know what I'd like to see? I would like to see them do a thing about the making of We Are the World. That would actually be pretty good where you hear about these big ass egos that are in there and they're all kind of fighting for who gets to have what part. You know, what would actually be perfect is if uh, they did that as like an Iannucci type thing and basically just make it a comedy, like a uh, Death of Stalin or Veep type thing, but with all of those just, yeah, gigantic egos. And where, and then you look at, if you look at We Are the World Now, you go, who are some of those people? Because they were hot for the moment but then boy, did that ever take a tumble after that. So I think there's something there. So you're giving respect a- uh, It's a C in respect. A, a gentleman's C. Yeah. So the next big one coming out this weekend, only in theaters, not streaming apparently anytime soon, according to some of the, the viral marketing that I saw is Free Guy, the new Ryan Reynolds movie where he plays a non-playable character in a video game and he becomes sentient and self-aware right around the time that the video game is apparently about to go offline. Anything that's good we've seen in the trailer. I have no interest, no interest in seeing it, but I will. Again, it feels like just a, a different spin on something that's already out there in this case, a little bit Wreck-It Ralph kind of thing or even uh the adam sandler one that was a, a total pixels yeah it's like the third crack at this now with like a different video game kind of thing where there's like a, a self-awareness of like the characters or i guess in the case of pixels stuff spilling out into real life but it seems like other than wreck it ralph which was animated stop doing video game stuff like they never get it right <laughs> and the trailers don't inspire confidence that they're going to get it right with this either 
they think there's big money in this because they're, if people are going to play games, oh, we definitely want to see a movie about playing games. Yeah. No, we don't. No, we don't. It definitely seems like the, the best part of it is going to be Ryan Reynolds. Everyone is going to have their own take on Ryan Reynolds. He seems somewhat divisive, maybe. I like him in Deadpool. And I think that should be where his humor is. And I think he should try to do some dramatic things that aren't always this kind of goopy guy. This also seems like the first big thing that Jodie Comer has done since uh, she is the assassin in the, the TV show Killing Eve. So that's free guy. I mean, yeah, between that and respect, it sounds like we are pretty lukewarm on most things and don't breathe too is going to continue that trend this is your house jared come on the first uh don't breathe is is fantastic it's one of the best horror movies i think of the 2010s where basically the premise in the first one is that these like kind of small time uh breaking and entering like thieves in uh detroit like realize that there's like a a house in like a pretty rundown part of Detroit um, where a blind man lives and they realize it'll be pretty easy pickings for them to just rob the place. And once they get in there, everything goes awry and they realize that the blind guy is just an absolute menace. Um, And there's some pretty horrifying um, things they find uh, in his house, including in the basement. I thought it worked like there's some really great stuff where it's like completely in the dark. That was really cool. and felt kind of original for that period of time, but the way the movie ends and just the, the, the vibes of the first one, I don't know why they're doing a second one, especially because in the second one, part of the premise is that like the blind guy has like taken care of and is like raising an orphan girl, which is not at all in character with like the way the first movie plays out at all. And then the the synopsis too then is that like basically he has to like protect her when a new group of criminals comes knocking at his door. And I don't like the idea of like this absolute menace from a previous movie all of a sudden being a little bit more like humanized. I think that's usually a mistake when like horror movies ever try to do that. Like I really don't care what like Freddy Krueger's upbringing was. I don't care that like Jason Voorhees had like an abusive mom or whatever. They're, they're villains. And the point of villains in horror movies is that it's heightened and you're not supposed to feel any like sympathy for them whatsoever. So Don't Breathe 2 is not high on my list of things to see, but I'm sure I'll probably see it when, on like a Tuesday when I can watch it for like five bucks. <laughs> Just like Free Guy for, for Bruce. There you go. Hard pass. I did see something else new this week. Um, it's going to be hitting the festival circuit and you'll see it. We're getting it in Iowa in September. It's called Storm Lake and it's about the newspaper in Storm Lake, Iowa. If you may remember, Art Cullen won the Pulitzer Prize for this bi-weekly editorials he had done. But what they do is they go inside the newspaper office and show how they actually are working and how they put together a day or a week's paper and what kind of problems they have, particularly during the pandemic, and also uh, during the Iowa caucuses. And it's it's a nice little look at what the Iowa caucus process is all about. But I think it, it strikes a, a, a good blow for us that, um, you know, we aren't making things up. We aren't doing a lot of um, negative 
uh, fake newsing things, when you see these people, how they go about getting their stories, who they're talking to, how they do it, it's a fascinating look. And if you've never worked at a small newspaper, it will make you want to work there. And it's coming, it's, uh, it's like I say, it's won a lot of film festivals already. And it'll start going out on more of those. And I believe it's building to a PBS um, airing sometime later in the year. But I'm, I'm pretty sure that they're gonna try and pitch it for a, a best Oscar documentary um, candidate. So it's good. Um, we're getting it here, like I say, in September. I think the premiere is actually gonna be in Storm Lake in mid-September. And then it'll start spreading out after that. But fascinating, fascinating. And it's fun to see um, just how hard they work. I love documentaries about newsrooms or, I mean, anything that feels like it tries to, to get to what it is that makes newspapers work. I started when I was a teenager working at a weekly newspaper. And I'll tell you, when I saw this, I could smell the ink again. It was just like it was coming right back to me, all those things and how you would be so worn out by the end of the day that you really couldn't scrape yourself up off the floor and then you come back and do it all over again the next day. Documentaries about this kind of stuff is always gonna be more interesting to me and I'm gonna be more inclined to see, I think, than like Spotlight, which I saw and I think I've only seen like once and was fine, but like, I don't know, I'm, I'm more interested in like certain subject matter is just always done better by documentary than it is by like actual narrative films. And I think this is probably one of those kind of subjects. When, you know, they always show people writing these hard hitting investigative stories that probably took two years to pull together and they do it in two hours and it makes it seem like it's so simple. But here, what's interesting to see is that all this other crap that you have to deal with in the course of a day, there's a woman who's taking the recipes from a lady who thinks that they, the recipe should be included in the paper. And so she's sitting and writing down all of the ingredients and things. And then you're seeing them deal with um, people who aren't really happy. Uh, there's a woman who has to go out and sell ads. And she says, you know, ever since we won the Pulitzer Prize, we lost, we lost people because they don't like art and they didn't want him to win. And they think this is a bad thing. So it's hard for me to get ads. And you think now there's something that you don't understand about our business. It has yeah. nothing to do with news. Anyway, it's a good thing you should look for it. It's called Storm Lake. Going in a slightly different direction, more of a, a trumped up action film that is on Netflix as of today called Beckett. And it stars John David Washington as a tourist with his girlfriend uh, in Greece. And a bunch of crazy stuff happens and he gets wrapped up in this political conspiracy plot and yeah it is a purely adult action thriller and i i can't think of many other examples of that in recent history from netflix uh, i mean it made me think of frenzy and the fugitive maybe not as stylistically accomplished as those but certainly as well paced and in that you know, vein of, you know, put the kids to bed, put on a movie and it's, it's going to work for you. Why so, does it seem that yeah. Netflix is kind of slowing down on its product? I don't see as much there as I used to. Well, I think a lot of the, the pandemic, I mean, they, they, around this time last year, 
I know they were crowing about how they were going to be able to get through the year without any problems as far as their development pipeline and post-production and marketing was going. So I think we are finally hitting the wall with them and they're, they're experiencing a bit of lag. When I was looking ahead to a lot of their films that are coming out, it's a little, little, little more sparse. And this uh, Beckett was filmed in the summer of uh, 2019. So it's been sitting in a drawer somewhere for a while waiting to come out, which is nice because everything that I'm seeing now that was potentially filmed over the course of the pandemic or had to shut down and then restart production, that is an aspect in my brain that I apply to it. Like it's, it's hard for me to not separate the creation process and just imagining that just off camera, everyone is wearing, you know, three face masks and, you know, face shields, but Beckett did not have to deal with that. I recommend it pretty highly, especially given the, the week of films that, that we've got right now, nothing's really jumping out as a, you got to go see this. Um, And I'll also shout out uh, the, the score was done by a composer named Ryuchi Sakamoto, who has done a ton of things, maybe best known for The Revenant, but a whole bunch of other stuff as well. And it is really good. Yeah, the music in in Beckett is fantastic. It should be mentioned too, two of the uh, other people in uh, Beckett besides uh, John David Washington, uh, Vicky Crapes and uh, Alicia Vikander, both having a pretty good summer since uh, uh, Vicky Crapes was in... Uh, Old, obviously, and uh, Lucia Vikander was just in uh, the Green Knight. So a good little uh, stretch of time for the both of them. And of course, for anybody who doesn't know, John David Washington was the, the main character in Black Klansman, and he was also the lead in Tenet. And the son of... Denzel. <laughs> if I were the kid of somebody, I'd be playing that all the time. You know who I am? I'm Colin Hanks. You know who I am? Chet Hanks. Yeah. <laughs> Chet, I'll be Colin, right? So yeah, so those are the uh, the new releases. The only one that's streaming right now is Beckett. Everything else you'll have to maybe go to a theater if you want to, including Don't Breathe 2, which is where we're, it's going to be our jumping off point for our staff picks. The theme for the staff picks this week is Least Necessary Horror Thriller Sequel. Uh, when I thought about least necessary sequels, I, I immediately thought of like more American graffiti or something that I actually saw in the theater was Blues Brothers 2000. I saw that one too. God awful. Blues Brothers 2000 is just the absolute worst. That's the one with the voodoo, right? At one point. Yep. It all culminates with this big jam session in some like haunted mansion in Louisiana. I mean, yeah, 2000 thumbs down. Boom. Roasted Blues Brothers. It also came out in 1998. It should be mentioned, it, even though it's called Blues Brothers 2000, which is, that's really getting uh, excited about the new millennium. <laughs> so I think I'm going to go, well, when you think about unnecessary sequels, there are some that are ridiculous, like Troll 2, which is not even a movie about trolls. It's a movie about goblins. Uh, and <laughs> that was basically made as its own thing and then marketed as a sequel to Trolls, which itself, I don't know who saw Trolls, 
not a not a terrible movie. It's got a it's it's a really weird early Julia Louise Dreyfus role. I know in in the first Trolls, but Trolls Two is just laughably bad. Yeah, and it, and it should be mentioned that that is not that uncommon of a, a thing in Italy because like their like copyright laws are a little bit more lax. So there are like all kinds of like movies that are billed as sequels to other famous horror movies that have nothing in common with the other ones. Like Zombie Two is like. Uh, which is a Fulci movie was originally like pitched as like a sequel to Dawn of the Dead, even though they have nothing to do with each other. Cause Dawn of the Dead in Italy was called zombie if I'm remembering everything correctly. So yeah, Italy, Italy, there's probably a lot of really funny ones like that. Um, when you look through stuff in Italy, but troll two is the pinnacle. Of that. <laughs> the, the pick that I'm going to go with for the horror thriller is uh unnecessary sequel is speed Two. Oh, cruise control. Oh, wait a minute. This the rules are changing here now. <laughs> I was thinking it was gonna be one of those bad Jared films where you go, oh god, they're all bad. But you get in there and speed too. Come on, boy. That's you're going into another turf. I'm gonna say nobody asked for speed two. No. We could do a whole random list of films where the sequel is just a retread of the structure of the first film. Die Hard 2 is the same thing. Speed 2 and Speed 2 is the worst just because of the the pun in the title because it takes place on a cruise ship and it's titled Cruise Control. <laughs> uh. I yeah, that that's just the just too much of the the cherry on on top for me to not. So, yeah, Speed 2 Cruise Control gets gets my vote. Also, I don't want to step on anybody else's butt. It's worth pointing out, Speed 2 Cruise Control, the budget was around $160 million, and at the box office, it made $164 million. So it, uh, it did not do great. That's one no. of those bookkeeping things where, all right, let's just pass this off on them. That We can make some money off this. Your bonus is safe. That's what I thought. Yeah, just to screw over whoever's got points on the back end. Right. Yeah, we're not, there's not going to be any percentage of this. I'm sorry. Hopefully I didn't, I didn't step on any, any of, uh, any of your picks with this, uh, the theme change, Bruce. Or... No, but uh, <laughs> if I, I'm going to, I'm going to go in another direction now and you guys are going to, I know you're going to shout me down. The sequels to the matrix. Ugh. Oh, no, no. That is one that we need to put a pin in and come back to because there is a fourth matrix movie supposedly coming up, supposedly coming out on Christmas day. I do not need it. I really, and why do you feel the need to, I mean, I know it's a money grab. That's all those things are, but they're, they, oh no, the story is unfinished. We cannot, we cannot really tell the whole true story. That's some old crap they got from star Wars. Star Wars said, oh yeah, there's more to this. And then they, after they got to three, they got greedy and decided they were going to do nine. And that they all look at that. Friday the 13th got to 13. Okay. But we know what we're getting there. You're not really digging into, oh, no, this is so psychological. It's like Lost. Lost, which did not know what they were going to do with their whole concept until people started speculating about it. And then when they did wipe the, the whole thing off the map, they went back to a fan uh, theory and used that for their thing. So these ideas that they're, oh, no, it's, it's very involved and we're thinking of these things. Well, that's the Matrix. And the Matrix, all it was is special effects and them bending over. 
Okay, Jared, you can go defend the matrix. This is just a case with you, Bruce. This is something I've noticed for a while now on like social media in particular. It seems like there's been a little bit of like, I don't know, revisionism or something maybe with the matrix reloaded because it made 739 million at the box office. And like the reviews for it were pretty strong when it came out. But then like more recently, you look at like lists where it gets named as one of the worst sequels ever. And I, I genuinely like it as much as the first Matrix movie. Like, I think the Matrix Reloaded is really, really fun. There's some amazing set pieces in it, especially the chase on like the freeway. And that one I don't have any problems with at all. The one um, I would say maybe a little bit there's more of a case to be made is the third one, uh, Revolutions, is a little bit uh, weaker. But even then, I don't know if it's one of the worst um sequels ever and then i guess we'll see with the fourth one i don't think they need to make a fourth one but i'll probably end up going and seeing it so i think a little too tough at least on the matrix reloaded <laughs> you know it's like men in black the first men in black was really fun and the second men in black was like 60 minutes because they didn't have enough material to really make a full movie and then they kind of come back oh let's put new people in it that's a tv show if you're doing a TV adaptation, you put different people in because you can't get the real ones. But I don't know about this stuff. But I want to know about real horror ones because you'd know all that, Jared, because you're the best at all of that. Well, uh, I, I was tempted to go in a couple different directions with that. like, And some of them I had either forgotten about or was not even aware of when I was just like looking at some lists as kind of a, a starting point. Uh, I, I had forgotten that there was a sequel to American Psycho that came out in 2002, just called American Psycho 2. That's that's pretty insane that they made a sequel to that one. Uh, there was a second Blair Witch movie that is, is always deservingly on the list of like some of the worst ever. But uh, my pick uh, has to be uh, the second Exorcist movie, which is the Exorcist 2 uh, Heretic, um, which got reviled when it came out. Uh, continues to get reviled, and then also suffers from the fact that, yeah, it followed uh, The Exorcist, which is obviously one of the most iconic horror movies of all time, um, but then the third Exorcist movie is also one of the best horror movies of all time, so it suffers too from the fact that it's bookended by these two movies that are incredible, and then just this absolute dud, like, in the middle of those two. And it's coming back. It is, for, like, four movies, I think is what the Blumhouse deal was for, if I remember right. Yeah, good luck with that. It's a trilogy, I should say. Sorry, not there's not four of them, it's three of them. So Exorcist 2. Heretic. Now we got news. News. There was a report just uh, yesterday that um, from the Hollywood Reporters where I saw this, um, that uh, the new Venom movie, uh, Venom colon, Let There Be Carnage, uh, is going to get pushed back uh, a month from uh, September 24th to October 15th uh, because of a uh, surge in COVID-19 cases due in large part to the Delta variant. And I'm just wondering if we're going to start seeing some uh, other movies that that happens with. Um, if there's movies that have already been pushed back to get pushed back again, or if there are ones that just had these, um, you know, dates set that uh, get pushed back from those uh, initial dates. I think um, that's a pretty big, high profile, big budget movie to be getting pushed back. And I'm wondering then if we're going to see that with some other ones too. I should say also that it get putting that it getting pushed back means it's going to be competing 
with uh, Halloween Kills, which obviously got pushed back an entire year from October 2020. So now that's going to be running the same week that the new Venom movie runs. So, I mean, that wouldn't be a terrible double feature, I don't think. No, no. But double featuring those two is maybe a, a big ask for America, broadly speaking. My little bit of news was an article from The Guardian titled Marvel and DC Face Backlash Over Pay. They sent a thank you note and $5,000. The movie made $1 billion. Uh, it's basically how writers of the comic books that these movies are based on are getting screwed over by Marvel in the transitioning of, of their storylines, which are getting adapted into these you know, massive multi-billion dollar you know, film franchises and they're just getting next to nothing from Marvel. And contractually, I think Marvel is, is not in the wrong, but I don't know. The comics industry has a, a really messed up history of that going back to Joe Siegel and Jerry Schuster who created Superman and just got a raw deal on that. <laughs> um, I mean, there's entire organizations that are, out there to help pay for old age medical costs for a lot of these golden and silver age writers and artists who can't afford to get healthcare while their stuff is out there and, you know, making buckets and buckets of money for Disney. I mean, this is just seems like something where it's, it's real easy to reformat things and it makes the creator-owned content that much more valuable creative people aren't though business people and so as a result yeah they don't think we're you know oh i could maybe sell this or this could make me a fortune you don't start you just want to make something right and that's that's what drives you so it's an odd situation i feel their pain but on the other hand you realize that they were paid, they were compensated for it. They just didn't realize that it could be much bigger than what they thought it was going to be. Yeah. You know, Bill Finger, when, when he created Batman, you know, I mean, he didn't know that this was going to be anything more than, you know, 10 cent nickel, whatever, you know, pulpy things. There was no ancillary market for, for this content. There were, there were no lunch boxes. There were no, you know, multi film franchise aspects to it bill finger uh particularly it's it's worth noting him in this discussion he was like in poverty when he died a lot of them are yeah one of the two guys that's responsible for creating batman yeah died in poverty so we're getting a piece of the action when the merge starts is that what you're telling me damn right <laughs> it's a complex situation but morally i mean like to the letter of the law I would say legally they don't, morally they do. <laughs> morally, it is imperative for them to make amends. The stories that they're, you know, basing all this on, you should be paying these people stuff. And even then, once you start breaking down who should get paid as the creator of something, I know, you know, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby are the two biggest names in Marvel's history. And the way that Marvel produced comics was, uh, I mean, it's called the Marvel method, but it was, you know, someone like Stan Lee would come up with a 
basic idea of what was going to happen over the course of the 24, however many pages of the issue. And then he would give that to an artist. In many cases, it was Jack Kirby, who would then draw everything based on that. And then Stan Lee would then come back, look at that, and then write all the words in, in the word bubbles to paste the whole thing out. I'm sure that I'm, I'm butchering that and it's not as cut and dry, but you know, who, who is the creator of those stories? Is it a, I mean, should they be cut equally in? You end up with a lot of examples of DC and Marvel alienating writers. The biggest example of which is in the mid nineties when Image Comics started as a creator owned home. But anyway, this is the kind of topic that like I could <laughs> go on for hours about, which is I don't want to say embarrassing, but I had a very lonely childhood. <laughs> okay, you ready for my news? Yes. I interviewed John Williams this week. You know, John Williams, a composer. Yes. And what do you think is his favorite score? Ooh, I'm going to go something early like Jaws. Chris? Close Encounters. I'm going to say Close Encounters. Close Encounters, by the way, was one of the most difficult ones he had because that note thing, he thought it needed to be six notes. And they said, no, we just need five. And so for him to come up with the right five notes, he said was very taxing. But his favorite was E.T. because he said E.T. captures everything. It really, it lifts it. He says, I feel a little lift when I'm, comp uh, when I'm conducting it. And I really enjoy that music. So that's his favorite, not Star Wars either. Um, and then I said, I asked him about, you know, do you ever think of lyrics or do you ever think this song should be, it should have words to it. Like I always remember back when Bill Murray did Star Wars on, on uh, Saturday Night Live, you know, where he made up words to Star Wars. And he said, oh God, don't make me do that. I hate that. He said, I would never want to be able to match words with music. He said, I would rather do my music and let somebody else write words to it. But I don't want to have to work with anybody. I don't want to collaborate. I don't want to have to set words to song. He said, I'd rather just give them my music and let them come up with something than to have to do that with somebody else. But he was fascinating. He was real fun. They're doing a special about him on PBS this next fall. And um, he talked about real, real informative about all the process of, of writing film music. And um, he loves to conduct. He's, he thinks that's really a fun aspect of all of it. And he said it's much easier when he's conducting his own music than he is somebody else's because he can hear things in there that he thinks, oh, I should have done that. Maybe I could have added a little more here. Whereas with somebody else, he says it's kind of, you don't have that, that personal attention to it. So he was a fun interview, fun, fun guy, but there's my news for the week. Is that already online or is that coming out? No, it'll, it'll be coming out, not right away. Exciting. There's my news for you. News, news, news. Well, next week, the one that I'm most looking forward to next week is Annette. You know, it was really a hot thing when it was over at the Cannes Film Festival. And then since it's gotten over this part of the world, people are going, really? I think that is in limited release in theaters right now, I believe. But next Friday, it'll be out on Amazon Prime. And then, yeah, I mean, it seems like I mean, we're just kind of in a, in a place where things are just 
fine. Anyway, Jared, would you like to do us the honors of, of taking us out? Well, uh, look, uh, in honor of uh, the movie uh, Respect uh, coming out this week, the uh, Franklin movie, all I will say is that um, what you need and what you want uh, is to go and see something good at the uh, movie theater. Every week you stick the landing. Nice. He's good. He's our goat. Well, thank you guys so much for being here. Thank everyone who has been listening. And uh, tell your friends, if you like movies, you know, tell your friends. Jared's holding up an Aretha Franklin record. Wow, I didn't know you had Aretha. Oh yeah. As always, thank you guys so much for taking the time and uh, rock and roll. Have a good one. So that is the end of the episode. Next week, we've got Annette on Amazon, Reminiscence on HBO Max, Sweet Girl on Netflix, and a handful of others in theaters that are worth talking about. You can check the show notes for links to where you can stream the movies that we talked about, discover older episodes, and find ways to contact Bruce, Jared, and myself as well, if you want. The show is produced by myself, Bruce, and Jared, and I'm the one who records and edits it. We hope that you've enjoyed the show and are taking very good care of yourselves out there. As always, thank you so much for listening. Do you remember this joke? If Hugh Jackman's real last name had been Jazz, God, go ahead and get that in. <laughs> He'll cut it. Don't worry. <laughs>